Do you know that if you went on uh, Google, really any one of the search engines, and asked the question, what was the number one killer in 2019, the unanimous answer across all the search engines is heart disease worldwide. 17 million, 17.9 million people died of heart disease. Guess what? That statistic is wrong. Do you know what the number one killer worldwide in 2019 was? Abortion. 40 to 50 million people had an abortion last year. That is more babies killed than people who live in the state of California. That's a lot of people. Um, Planned Parenthood is celebrating. They had a banner year last year. They did a record number of over 345,000 abortions in America. It's a banner year for them. They, they did 40% of all the abortions in the United States of America. Last year we had uh, somewhere between, let me get my figure right here, uh, around over, a little over 345,000 abortions here in the United States. Um, um, excuse me, that was Planned Parenthood. Had 862,000 abortions in the United States last year. What do you think God thinks about all that? My heart's broken. That we think so little of human life. And because we think so little of human life, we see it in reflected all across our society, all over, everywhere. So I want to just lead us in prayer. And uh, really ought to be just a prayer confession, shouldn't it? That we would be so callous, so indifferent um, toward human life. So let me, let me lead us in prayer. <clears throat> God, we are sinners. And we live in a very sinful country, a very sinful world. That we would take that which is so precious to you. And we would think so lightly of it. That we would flout. The number of abortions that we make. That we do. Saw a picture just today, Father, of an art exhibit in New York City saying, thank God for abortion. Oh, how could we be so cruel? How could we be so callous? How could we be so wicked? And we just admit, Father, that as a nation, as a world, we need redemption and it only comes through you. I'm so thankful that in Jesus Christ, we have a fresh start, a new beginning. I pray that each one of us who claim the name of Jesus Christ would do whatever we can do to turn the hearts of people back to you in this nation, in this community, in our families, in our workplaces. Help us to, to recognize that to you, even one life is precious. 
Thank you for your forgiveness. In Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Let me share with you that I have set you up to fail. Okay? I made an announcement last week that just... I did you an injustice, okay? I challenge you to read through the Bible in this coming year. You know what? You're going to fail. Honest. It's just going to be tough to do. So I am recapping. I'm, I'm, I'm calling back my words, okay? And what I want to do is I want to challenge you. Let's just all read the New Testament in 2020. Can we do that? You're going to find in your bulletin every week, there's going to be five chapters. If you can read five chapters a week, that means you can read a chapter every day, and you can take Saturday and Sunday off, or you can take Monday and Tuesday off, or or you can, oops, I missed yesterday. That's okay. I can regroup today. One chapter a day. If you get behind, read two chapters. If you can read five chapters a week, For the next 49 weeks, you'll read through the New Testament. How many of you would say that's much better than trying to read through the the whole Bible, okay? Now, you know, maybe after you get through that, you'll say, okay, let's really go at it and, and I can do that. But I don't want you to fail, okay? I want you to succeed. And you can succeed by reading through the Bible in, in, through the New Testament in a year, okay? Can we agree to that? All right. Great. All right. Good. Well, let's go to the Bible, and I want to look at John chapter 1, beginning at verse 43. Uh, It's here on the screen. It's in your notes. If you need a Bible, uh, there's a Bible under the chair. If you don't own a Bible, take that Bible under the chair and take it home with you. That's our gift to you, okay? So reading from John chapter 1, beginning at verse 43. It says, The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said, to him, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. And Philip found Nathanael and told him, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. Come and see. We, we talked about that last week, that that was one of the stages of, of a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, is that Jesus said to these disciples right here in John chapter 1, he said to them, come and see. And, and what, so what Philip is basically saying to, or uh, what Nathaniel is basically saying to Philip is, come check him out. Come check Jesus out. Give him a try And then make up your own mind about the identity of Jesus. Is he really the Messiah? So who in your life was the one who said to you, come and see? Who was the one in your life that um, encouraged you to consider placing your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Who who is that one? I I hope that in retrospect that you are thankful for that person who took the time to challenge you to check Jesus Christ out. Uh, Because that's an important thing to do, to tell somebody else about Jesus Christ. I I read this week uh, where... 20% of all believers 
will at some point in their life invite another believer to come to church with them. Now, listen to what I just said. 20% of all followers in Jesus Christ will invite another follower of Jesus Christ to come to church with them. 20%. That's one in five Christians will invite Christians to come to church with them. And usually it happens along this line. Somebody's new to the community and, and they might say to you, hey, I understand you're, you're a Christian, you go to church. What's a good church in this community to go to? Or, or they might say, you know, I, I used to go to church, but I haven't in a long time. I need to get back into church. And you say, well, hey, come check out my church. And what happens when we do that is that we pat ourselves on the back and say, well, okay, I've fulfilled my deal. I've invited somebody to church. Good for me. But, but here's the tragedy. One in five church members will do that if the other person is already a believer, is already familiar with church. But when it comes down to somebody who is what we would call lost, somebody who's unchurched, somebody who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, somebody who uh, maybe hasn't, hasn't been in a church maybe in their entire life except for a wedding or a funeral, um, when it comes down to that, only 2% of Christians will invite a non-believer, a non-church person to church. Only 2%. That would be like all of the rest of you except for these three or four people right over here. They're not going to keep open their mouth. All the rest of you, you're not going to open your mouth to, tell, to invite somebody else to church or to invite them to faith in Jesus Christ. Only this little handful over here. Um, folks, that's sad, isn't it? Uh, that's sad. Aren't you grateful that the person that invited you to faith in Jesus Christ was in that 2% and not in the 98% that aren't doing anything. I mean, think about it. Um, who is the one in your life who said, come and see? But here's the second part of that question. You know it's coming, okay? But here it comes anyway. Who is it that God is laying on your heart that you need to go to and say, come and see? Come and see Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Will you be in the 2% who are bold enough, who are burdened enough about the lost condition of family members and friends and, and uh, uh, co-workers to say, come and see, come, come check Jesus out? You know, I think he's the answer to the problems you're facing. Um, let me ask, have you ever lost anything that was... Uh, kind of valuable to you and and you searched and you searched and you searched and you found it and you remember the the excitement the the joy the exuberance that when you found it you just wow this is this is tremendous back in 1980 um jan and i had and and our daughter karen had moved from houston to fort worth i was going to finish up the last two semesters of my Master of Divinity degree at Southwestern Seminary in Fort Worth. And so to, 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 to sustain ourselves during those times, Jan got a job in the evenings as a, uh, a, a scheduling clerk in the Harris Medical Center. In the, she was in the surgical unit. And so she worked in the evenings. I went to school in the mornings. And in the afternoon, I worked in 
a variety of different um, jobs, uh, really doing yard work for various kinds of people. And um, there was one lady that I worked for. Uh, she was a retired English professor from TCU. Uh, she was in about in her 80s, had an old house, but big grounds and lots of yards. And she had a service that mowed the lawn, but uh, she needed somebody else to do the other things. So I did everything from trimming hedges to pulling weeds to polishing silverware uh, to um, raking leaves. And I remember one afternoon I was there and I was working in the backyard and I was raking up this huge pile of leaves, just working along. I wore contacts at the time. And suddenly I blinked and a contact fell out into this huge pile of leaves. Now think with me, how is, yeah, right? Okay. So for some odd reason, I thought, we can do this. So I jumped in the car and I drove home, took the other contact, you know, driving home with one eye, you know, trying to see. And, And when I got home, you know, took the contact out, put my glasses on, drove back, And for 15 minutes, I went through that huge pile of leaves. And I found it. I found it. Do you think I was excited? Wow. You know, because seminary students don't have money for another contact. I'm just sorry. That's the way it is. Uh, You think about the joy, the excitement that comes when you find something that was lost, that's very precious to you. Let's take a moment and let's talk about the joy that comes about finding that which is lost. And the first point on your outline there, the joy of finding one. The joy of finding one. You know, Jesus was a master storyteller. Uh, he told parables. So those are our are, are stories. They have a, a, you know, an, they're an earthly story that has a heavenly meaning. It's Jesus telling a story that would relate to the people that were listening to him that had a central message that he could convey to them. Those are what parables do. Well, in Luke chapter 15, we find a series of parables about searching for that which is lost. A lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost boy. So let's start by looking at the lost sheep. The lost sheep. <clears throat> and that's uh, chapter, uh, again, Luke um, 15, beginning at verse 3. So Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed. Uh, Perhaps you've seen the posting that's kind of going around on Facebook that simply says, Jesus leaving the 99 to find one is crazy. Unless I am the one. You know, there's a truth there. Remember, uh, 2 Peter 3, 9 says that God is not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So the picture in this parable is that of searching diligently, looking behind every bush, turning over every rock. I mean, the, the shepherd here, there's a sense of urgency. 
this sheep is lost. And, and so the shepherd goes out immediately. Because if he, if he delays, that sheep is going to be the lunch of some wolf out there, okay? And that sheep is going to be lost forever. And, and so there's urgency there. Do you ever feel urgency for a person in your life who's lost? Who doesn't know Jesus Christ? A real urgency? I mean, because after all, there is coming a day when it's going to be too late. And here's the kicker. We don't know when that too late day is going to be. And I'm not talking about just Jesus returning. I'm talking about an accident, a death. And then it's too late. So there's the desperation, the urgency of that shepherd here in this parable. But contrast that then with the joy that when that lost sheep is found. I mean, he says, rejoice with me. He says, there's going to be joy in heaven over finding that lost sheep. More than over those 99 who who never strayed away. Um, How excited do we get when people come to faith in Jesus Christ? Do you remember a couple of months ago we had baptism Sunday and we baptized six people up here? Do you remember all the cheering and the clapping and, the, and so forth that was going on? I mean, so let me ask, what are we doing to create that kind of excitement in heaven? What are we doing to create that kind of excitement in heaven? Do you realize based on this parable that you and I can do something right now? That sends the angels rejoicing in heaven. Do you ever think about that? You have power to control heaven. To bring about a party in heaven. Based on what you're doing with your one. The person that God has laid on your heart. Let's talk a little bit about lostness. Okay. Um, How many people attend church in Elko County? Any, Any thoughts? Well. George Gallup in his poll. Of the you know, the the second decade of the 21st century says that about 35, or excuse me, 37% of Americans attend church on any given Sunday. So 37% of Americans are in church right now, according to George Gallup. George Barna, on the other hand, says, no, it's more like 35% of all people in America are attending church on this, on any given Sunday, okay? Well, what about Nevada? Well, unfortunately, we don't meet the national average, okay? Uh, and when I talk about people attending church, I'm certainly not talking about those who go to the uh, LDS stakes. I'm not talking about people who are in, uh, uh, you know, Jehovah's Witness. I'm talking about people who are born-again evangelical Christians, mainline Protestant, and Roman Catholic. That's That's what we're talking about here. In Nevada... Figures only about 9.3% of Nevadas are in church this morning here in our state. Uh, What about Elko County? You've heard me before talk about the fact that Elko County is pretty much a lost county. They're pretty pagan here, if you think about it. Uh, A number of years ago, a man by the name of David Olson did some very extensive research county by county through all uh, 50 states. And he found that Elko County is, is in the category of the most unchurched counties in America. Um, he said that 
on any given Sunday, only about 2.9% of the population is in an evangelical church in this county. Now, you can add to it uh, mainline Protestant church, Presbyterian, Methodist, uh, Episcopalian, and that figure will reach about 4% of people in Elko County are in church this morning. It means 96% are not. And uh, if you think about it, a 15-mile radius around this church, there are probably about 33,000 people. Um, so at 4% who are attending either a mainline Protestant church or an evangelical church, that means that somewhere between thirteen and 1,400 people are attending church this morning. Now, let's extrapolate that um, to include the fact that a lot of people who say, yes, I'm a regular attender at church, define being regular at church saying, that I'm there three Sundays out of every eight, okay? So let, let's say the average people who attend or who are regular attenders or semi-regular attenders, uh, I would say that means there are about 2,200 people uh, in this radius of 15 miles around our church who would consider themselves regular attenders or semi-regular attenders. But not all of them are Christians, Right? Would you agree that not everybody who goes to church is a Christian? Uh, So let's just for illustration's sake, let's say that 25% of that number are not believers in Jesus Christ. That means that out of those 2,200 people, we've got 1,650 people who we could say are genuine followers of Jesus Christ, are genuine Christians. Um, So when you figure that out, and, and maybe you add in, okay, let's add in some people who, for one reason or other, have dropped out of church. They're still Christians, but they've chosen for one reason or other they're not going to church anymore. Somebody hurt their feelings or or, or whatever. Um, we could add in maybe a, a, some people that are believers in Jesus Christ who go to the Roman Catholic Church because I believe that some Roman Catholics are Christians, okay? Uh, I'm not going to apologize for that. I believe that to be true. So let's let's just take a number, that would still mean that maybe out of 33,000 people within 15-mile radius of this building, you could have 28 to 30, 208, excuse me, 2,800 to 3,000 believers. That means it's about 9% of the population of Elko Spring Creek are followers of Jesus Christ. Um, which means that one out of every 11 people that you associate with are Christians. Which really means that 10 out of every 11 people are not believers in Jesus Christ. And folks, that might be a high number. It may be more like 5 to 6% are really true followers of Jesus Christ. And, and so the bottom line is, folks, we live in a lost community. And here are people who are distressed, they're troubled, they're confused, they're bewildered, they're worried, they're weary, they're hassled, they're, they're hurting, they're dejected, they're dispirited, they're helpless, they're, they're worn out, they're aimless, they're scattered. I mean, Jesus described them as sheep without a shepherd, scattered on the hillsides. And, and, and people that find that their problems are so great and they don't know where to turn to find the answers to their problems. So let me ask you, 
Do you think God cares about those people? Uh, Does he look at them with the same compassion that Jesus looked with compassion on the masses in his day? He is willing to leave the 99 to go after the one and search for that one. Let's look at the second parable, the lost coin. Luke 8, uh, 15, 8. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me because I found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. Do you catch the idea that they party like crazy? When a person who has been separated from God by sin comes to God in love. There's a party going on in heaven. Wouldn't you like to have a hand in creating a party in heaven? Yeah, think about it. Luke's gospel continues then with Jesus telling a third story. Look at verse 11. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want... My share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and kill the fatted calf we have been fattening kill the calf we've been fattening we must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life he was lost but now he is found so the party began now as you look at this parable first of all note the compassion of that father toward that wayward son i mean the son returns home and instead of the father chastising the son Why did you do this? Well, you know, instead of chastising him, look what he does. He welcomes with open arms. And not only that, what is significant there is in the first century world in Jewish society, a Jewish man never ran in public. They just didn't do it. It was was not sophisticated. It was not something that was acceptable. And here is his father. He sees the son from afar. And what does he do? He runs to him. I mean, there's compassion there. There's love for him. <clears throat> I, I hope that 
And the thing that stands out in all three of these parables is the common theme that's there uh, in all of them. Each story is focused on the one. Uh, One sheep out of a hundred, one coin out of ten, one son out of two. Uh, And in each story, uh, there's... You know, there's the one is first lost, and then he's found. And in each story, there's an exuberant joy, and there's a celebration where when the one is found. And so, when you put all three of those stories together, the meaning is real clear. God is passionate about the one. God is passionate about the one. And you know what? That in and of itself is remarkable. I mean, think about it. God has a universe to run. He's got galaxies to uphold. He's got governments to rule and more than 7 billion people to sustain on this earth. And yet the Bible doesn't say that the heavens rejoice over cosmic mysteries and universal realities. Instead, something special happens in heaven when one person who was separated from God in sin is restored to God in love. Um, so let's talk for a moment about the value of one. The value of one. You see, it's easy to lose sight of the one when you think about 7 billion people in the world. It's easy to lose sight of one when you think of almost 330 million people in the United States. It's easy to lose sight of one when we talk about a little over 3 million people in Nevada or uh, 52,500 people in Elko County or 33,000 in Elko and Spring Creek community. It's easy to lose sight of it when you look at the big picture. And it can be overwhelming. I mean, how in the world are we going to reach 30,000, 33,000 people for Christ. It's, it's kind of overwhelming. How are we going to do that? Well, simply this. One person at a time. That's the key. One person reaching one person reaching one person. Now, <clears throat> with apologies to the 60s singing group, Three Dog Nights, one is not the loneliest number. One is the most important number. When it comes to God. Okay. Each and every person is precious to God. God loves each and every one of us. uh, And each and every person. God doesn't love the crowds. Okay. He loves the one. He loves the one. Let me me show you how valuable one is to God. How valuable each person is to God. So let's look at another parable of Jesus. Matthew chapter 13 beginning at verse 45 and 46. Here's the parable. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and he bought it. Now, let me just stop right there and, and, and warn you. Let's be careful not to lump this parable in with the one that preceded in the verse before it. Because there are two different meanings altogether. The the parable right before it in verse 44 says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. And in his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. 
So here in verse 44, the, that first parable states that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field that was discovered. And, and the man discovering it, the one discovering it, went to great lengths to possess that treasure as his own. See, this parable, that, that parable in, in verse 44, is really pointing to the priceless treasure of salvation. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. What is the kingdom of heaven? It is an eternal relationship with, between God and us. That's what it is. It's, it's the lordship of Jesus Christ in your life. That is the hidden treasure. That's the thing that is so important that you and I ought to do anything and everything we can to possess that. To, to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's that important. But the second parable, beginning in verse 45, is different. Okay? I mean, at, at first glance, we say, well, they're just the same. This is that Hebrew redundancy that will say something one way and then say it again another way. And so you think here that, you know, these things are alike. It's the same thought, just two different similes that are being used. Ah, but I want you to look closer because in verse 44, it says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. But in verse 44, it says the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking pearls of great price. So who is this merchant? Well, it's not you and me, okay? Uh, The context of the whole of chapter 13 will tell us who that merchant is. Because the whole of of chapter 13 is is a chapter filled with parables about the kingdom of God. There's the parable of the four soils. There's the parable of the weeds. Uh, there, there is the, uh, the parable of the mustard seed. There's the parable of the yeast, okay? And in the majority of those parables, the main character, the man who's planting seed along the, you know, in the different kinds of soils, the farmer who plants the field and the weeds come up, the, the one who plants the, the mustard uh, seed, the one who is the baker who inserts the yeast, all of those, the main character of those is God. God's the main character. So in the parable here of the great of the pearl of great price, the merchant is God and he's seeking choice pearls. Okay? Folks, those choice pearls are us. We're the choice pearls. We're the ones that that God designates as choice, as precious, as valuable. So valuable that he sells everything he owns and he buys us. Out of slavery to Satan, out of entrapment to sin, out of the, all the, the sin that leads to eternal destruction and damnation. Uh, he did that for us and he did it through Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, he says, You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. He sold everything. Because you're a choice pearl. He sold everything that you might be rich. So that by his poverty you could be made rich. See, Jesus Christ did what was necessary to reach the one. Whether it's you, whether it's me, whether it's your aunt, whether it's your uncle, whether it's your co-worker, whether it's a stranger that rides on the bus uh, with you. See, the one is important to Jesus Christ. So important that he was willing to pay the ultimate price to possess you as his choice pearl. From time to time, you'll hear somebody say, 
Well, you know what? God loved you so much that if you were the only person on the planet, Jesus Christ would still die for you. Let me tell you the truth about that statement, okay? It's true. (laughs) Okay? You're a choice pearl. That God would do anything to have a relationship with you. And so God cares for people one at a time. And he wants us to care for people one person at a time. So let's talk about the commitment then to one. The commitment to one. See, to commit to care for one. We're, we're, we're talking about who's your one. Who's the one that God is laying on your heart that you're going to care about, you're going to pray for, you're going to witness to. Who is the one in your life that needs Jesus Christ? To commit to care for that one, to pray for that one, to to share Jesus with that one, is not going to happen just because you say, well, it's going to happen. No, it's going to require intentionality on your part. You might want to write there on your notes, intentionality. You need to be intentional about doing this. And it's going to require accountability on your part. Um, one of the things that our disciple groups give to, to our members, they give accountability. So you are accountable to your group. They encourage you. They, they challenge you. I shared this with our, our disciple group leaders here a week before last when we had our disciple group leader retreat, is that during this Who's Your One campaign, those group leaders, you are accountable to hold your members accountable to say who's your one. And so group leaders, every time you have your meeting, start by saying, okay, how's it going with your one? Who are you praying for? What are you doing to to build, build a bridge to them? We need accountability if we're going to reach this world for Jesus Christ. But it starts one person at a time. So I'm going to get really specific here, okay? I'm going to give you three assignments. You've got 49 weeks to carry these assignments out, okay? You can do this, all right? You can do this, all right. First of all, I want each one of you who's a part of our church family to invite your one, your unchurched, unsaved person to either breakfast or lunch or dinner sometime in the next 49 weeks, okay? So don't let your schedule say, oh, I don't have time for that. You got time to plan it out, okay? And what I want you to do is I want you to be ready to share your story of what God has done in your life and then share God's story of what he's done in this world to to redeem people back to himself. Now you say, well, I don't know how to do that. Well, we've got something called the Gospel Conversation Workshop that will teach you a very easy way to present the gospel of God's story of what he's done. And I know that some of you say, well, you know, you have it on Friday night and you have it on Saturday morning, and I just don't have that time to be able to do that, my work schedule, whatever. Well, we're going to do something a little different to help you not to have to worry about Friday night and Saturday morning. And my apologies to group leaders, because if I steal away a person or two out of your group, it's okay, because they'll return to your group better. Okay? Starting on Sunday morning, February the 9th, we're going to go five weeks at 9 o'clock downstairs in the basement, and I'm going to teach the Gospel Conversation Workshop. Five weeks, get it under your belt. You're going to come to church anyway, just come an hour early, or slip out of your small group for five weeks, 
And uh, we're going to teach you how to do that. And if that doesn't fit your schedule, then we'll figure something else out, okay? I'll come to your house and I'll teach it to you. I don't know, whatever. We all need to know how do you share your faith, okay? And so that's the first thing. Your person that you're praying for, that you're seeking to reach, your unsaved, your unchurched person, invite them to breakfast, lunch, or dinner, your choice. Be sure and pick up the tab. Come on. Um, And then share with them. This is how God's affected my life. Here's how he can be a work in your life. You've got 49 weeks to do that. Second part of the assignment. You as a family. And I, you know, I understand not everybody's a family unit. And you can still do this. <clears throat> Pick a family in your neighborhood. And invite them over to your house for dinner. For a cookout. For lunch or whatever. And one person in your family just share what Jesus Christ means to you during that time. You've got 49 weeks to do that. Just build a relationship with somebody in your apartment complex, lives down the road from you. Say, hey, man, let's get together. Been wanting to talk to you. And uh, come over to for a cookout. We'll, we'll fry up some whatever, and, and we'll have a great time. And just share with them what God's doing in your life. Third part of the assignment then, in the next 49 weeks, Invite your one, an unchurched, unsaved person, to attend church with you. Just just try it, okay? I urge you to take these three steps to zero in on your one. Because, folks, remember, Jesus died for the one. Okay? Our task isn't going to be easy, okay? Uh, The truth of the matter is that Life in churches has changed in America over the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years. What used to be called attractional evangelism just doesn't work anymore. Where we can put out a sign on the road and say, y'all come and people just come. We can have revival services and we can put banners up and put you know ads in the newspaper and people are going to flock to here. Those days are kind of over. What needs to happen now is instead of hoping people come to us, we need to go to them. I mean, isn't that what Jesus said? Go. And so what we've got to do is we've got to be involved in their life, in their context, in their culture, and live out Jesus Christ before them so that people can see Jesus in us and give us the opportunity to share. This is what Jesus Christ means to me and what he's done in my life here. Folks, there's a lot at stake here. I mean, we have far, far too many people here in Elko Spring Creek who are headed for shipwreck. And, and, And we're the ones who have been commissioned by Jesus Christ to be on mission rescuing them. There's a lot at stake here. A number of years ago, there was a preacher in England by the name of John Holden. John Holden lived in an area of, on the coast of England where shipwrecks often occurred. And one day the, the, the bell sounded an alarm that a ship had gone down right off the coast, had, had made shipwreck. And so all the people in the village ran out and they began manning the lifeboats and going out and trying to rescue people that were caught in the surf and the sea and uh, bringing them back. And finally, the last boat was coming back. And uh, 
It was full of, of semen that had been rescued. And somebody crawled out from the shore. Did you get them all? And the, the, the man that was manning the rowboat says, No, I think there's one more, but we had no more room in our boat. And as he got closer to shore, he said, If somebody else will go out with me, we'll go out and we'll look for that last one. And John Holden says, I'll do it. I'll go. And about that time, his mother ran up and put her arms around his neck and says, Son, don't go. Please don't go. You're my only son left. Your, your brother sailed off three years ago, and we've not heard from him since. We have no idea if he's still alive or dead. Please don't go. You're my only son left. Don't go. And John Holden said, But I've got to go. So he got in the boat, and they went out, and it seemed like for hours they were out beyond sight and finally through the fog coming back there was that rowboat <clears throat> and somebody crawled out and said did you find him did you get that last one and John Holden yelled out and says yes we found him and tell my mother it's my brother folks who's the one that you're going to rescue in this year who's your one Who's the one that God has laid on your heart that you can reach for Jesus Christ in this day and in this time? You see, none of us know the impact of reaching one person with Jesus Christ. You reach one person, you know what? You could reach their family. You could reach the business that they're in. You could reach their circle of friends. And the impact for the kingdom of God could be multiplied over and over and over again. So who's your one? Who's your one?